Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. This shear is dedicated to the memory of our beloved friend, Eliakim. Alexander Ben Avraham. Last Shabbos, I was at a big university in, in New York with a giant, giant number of people, actually. It was like a small city, but it, was, but it was a college. And for Friday night dinner, like, I don't know, around 400 people and, and lunch, like a little less, but hundreds of people. And before I got up there, I, I asked, I said, I said, is there a, a, a mikvah nearby? Because I go to the mikvah Erev Shabbos or do my best, Erev Yantav, Erev Shabbos. By the way, that reminds me, my wife is from Brooklyn. And before I went to Brooklyn for Shabbos for the first time ever, it was one of our first Shabbos' married. I remember we were staying in a little hotel there and I, Sukkot was about to start. And I went down to the, the person behind the desk who worked in the hotel. And I said, where's the closest mikvah? And he said, on this block? <laughs> there are actually two mikvahs on that block. So he sent me to the closer of the two, which was a, a Vizhnitz mikvah. Anyway, so I asked my host, I said, is there a mikvah nearby? And they said, there's one right here. And I, I, you know, I was like, okay, great. But then I was thinking, what does that mean? There's one right here, like... Five-minute drive? Ten-minute drive? Like, what, what does that mean right here? And then it turns out that they had a guest room in their giant building, and literally ten feet from my room there was a mikvah. I was like, oh, okay, that's what right here means. Okay. So, so that was the first mikvah I went to. The, another mikvah that I went to during my time there was they, they went to introduce me at lunch, and so I had already spoken and. The person said, listen, normally when you introduce a speaker, you say it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege, but I just want you to know, it's actually an honor. <laughs> and it's actually a privilege to introduce our speaker, Mr. David Weiss. <laughs> That was an even better mikvah. That was an even better mikvah, you know? So uh, a couple of people I told that to, like, were very protective of me, you know? And they were like, did you correct them? And I was like, chas v'shalom, you know? I mean, it, it felt so good for it to be so nothing, you know what I mean? Like, like who cares, right? I'm, I'm there to say Torah, right? So... So there were so many adventures. I'll tell you something wild. I had a, a big project due that we, I was very late on, and it was causing me tremendous anxiety. Actually, a couple of projects due at that point, both with very large deadline pressures. And I was traveling, so it wasn't so easy to work. And you know, the, the projects that are hardest are the ones that you can't wrap your mind around because you don't even really know what's being asked of you. Those are the, those are the harder ones. And so, so first I have to understand it before I could do it. And, and one of the two anyway, one had was just a, a lot of work to do in a short period of time with a lot of moving parts and people in different parts of the country and the world. So just to coordinate that, that, that was hard. But then the other project, I just didn't understand what I needed to do. And so that, was really difficult and was starting to weigh on me emotionally. And I, I was getting home and I was in the airport in New York now. And my wife was still in New York, so I was gonna be coming back to an empty house with a lot to do. So I reach into my change pocket in the airport at JFK and my key's not there. And I said, okay, so now I'm going to be arriving back home to, to being locked out. But then I just decided, I said, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to worry. I made, I made a conscious decision that I'm not going to worry. And you know something? Moments later, I forgot about it. 
And I know that I completely forgot about it because what I'm going to tell you next. I get on the plane and I, I go to put my, my coat in the, the luggage area on top of the seat. And as I'm doing that, the, the flight attendant says to me, you can't put your coat there. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, did I even hear you properly? Like, I don't even know what that means. I can't put my coat there. Like, my entire life, I've put my coat there. What are you talking about? I can't put my coat there. But I didn't say anything. I'm not going to start a fight in the middle of the aisle, right? Like, that's, the, you know, next stop, Instagram, right? Like, who's the crazy guy, right? <laughs> Let's all laugh at the crazy guy. So <laughs> I'm like... I said, I can't put my coat up there? Like, I just wanted to make sure that I, I heard properly. And she said, no, you have to put it on your lap. I said, okay. So I closed the bin, and then I sat with it on my lap. Five minutes later, the person sitting in front of me points to the floor on the aisle and says, that's your house key. Oh my wow, oh my God. And I, the first thing I did was remember that I had lost my house key, which is proof that when I said I'm not going to worry about it, I really forgot about it as an issue in my life. And the second was, what? And then, I, I guess maybe it was a bit of chutzpah, but I said, could you get it, please? <laughs> like, it wasn't enough that it dropped from heaven, literally. It's like, bring it to me. And the person said, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. And handed me the key. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'll tell you another unbelievable story. So I gave this talk on Zoom Friday morning. And at the end of the talk, someone who's been part of this, it's a little talk that's been going on for years, never really volunteers or interacts anything apart from what we're talking about. At the end of the talk, holds up this little rectangular card, a little larger than a business card. And he says, look, and it has the word famazing on it. <laughs> and I was like, like my head was ready to explode. I said, what's that? He says, it says famazing. He said, I thought you'd appreciate it. I had a script that I turned in that day, and as a punchline, I had written the word famazing. <laughs> I've never seen or heard that word before in my life. And then, when I was reading through it again, I cut the joke. It was a whole line. Someone had gotten an F on it. Like, this kid gets an F on a paper, and he says to the teacher, does that stand for famazing? <laughs> and the teacher says, that, that's not a word. And he says... It, might be. And she says, it definitely isn't. And then I thought, you know what, that's long. I don't know if that's funny. I'm just going to cut it. And then he shows me this card. At, and I'm telling you, with 10,000% certainty, he had no idea that that happened, right? Because no one saw that. I was working alone. Shows me this card, amazing. And I was like, I'm putting that back in the script. That's <laughs> like... You're talking about signs. I mean, that's, that is a sign. It's like, okay, it's back in the script. So, you know, how can you tell stories like this without, without concluding what Rip Shlomo would always say, right? What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? You see, God is so close but he's also so concealed. And this is the major piece of information that, that the world needs. Because the world is caught up in the wrong debate. The wrong debate is, is there a God or isn't there a God? There's definitely a God. And you know what the proof is? There's a you and there's a world. Because if there wasn't a God, there wouldn't be a you, and there wouldn't be a world. And there is a God every single moment. So the next wrong debate that people engage in is, okay, I understand this magnificent 
thing called reality came out of somewhere. It must have been created. There must have been a creator. But after God created it, he abandoned it. So that's the, that's the next wrong debate. Like, okay, I accept that there's a God, but does he know, does he know me? Is he involved in my life? That's, that's, that's the next wrong debate. Because if God is infinite, then God is utterly present at every single moment, and nothing is difficult for God. Reb Shlomo used to say on a regular basis, why are you making God so small? He used to say that all the time. Why are you making God so small? In other words, a, a condition, if you want to take the word infinite seriously, a condition of God's infinity is that he is ultimately close and ultimately involved in every aspect of reality. And nothing is difficult for God. You see, the problem is, or one problem is, is that all of us keep on thinking of God as a bigger, better, stronger, smarter version of us. <laughs> and that premise is corrupt. It's a corrupt premise. God is beyond, 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 beyond. But at the same time, completely saturating every aspect of existence. We are within God. This world reality is a subset of God. And God absolutely saturates every aspect of this realm. Now, God is infinite and we're finite. And so the idea is, is that you can never fully catch God because God is infinite. So here's the mistake that people make then, if they've even gotten up to this level of thinking, which is that if God is always a little bit beyond, since God is infinite and I'm finite, now here's the mistaken conclusion. I'll start with the mistaken conclusion. Therefore, if I can never catch God, God isn't here, he's there. But the reality is God is here at all times during your search, and he's even more there <laughs> in his infinity. So again, the wrong debate. It's not that God isn't here, he's there. He's completely here, and he's even more there. Because that's the interaction between the finite and the infinite. So it says in, it says in Tehillim, and we say it during our prayers. In fact, it's one of the very first things that we say when we start Psuke de Zimra. It says, be glad of heart, you who seek Hashem. So they say that the normal process is, is that when you're looking for something, you're sad. But then when you find it, you're happy. But it's different with God. Because the very process of looking for God brings joy. The very, the very process of looking for God brings joy. So we had Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld with us this Shabbos, and he was saying over from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, from the beginning of the story, The Seven Beggars, that it begins this way by saying that there was a king, and the king during his lifetime wanted to give his kingship over to his son. So, so that's already unusual. The king, remember, whenever we're talking about parables, we're, the king is always God, and the Jewish people are always the child. Okay? So, so the king, during his lifetime, wants to give over rulership to his son. So if, you're, if your mind is working properly, you understand we're talking about the creation of free choice, and God's concealment. You see, before we go a little bit further into this, what we have to understand, here's the, I, I told you all the, the wrong questions that we ask. But let me tell you what the, what the right question is. Or rather, what the conclusion is. It's that God is here and is always here but that he's just concealed. 
that, that's the thing that everyone has to drill into their hearts and into their minds. Is that God is as present in this realm, this dimension that we inhabit, as he is in the highest heavens. He's just more concealed. That's the secret. That's, that's the secret sauce. I'm going to say it one more time because you have to really, when you, when you get this one thought, it's like I'm, 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 I'm telling you, I'm handing you a treasure chest. You know, in like the cartoons, there's like, there's like that big gold goblet and all the gold coins and there's always that string of pearls that's hanging out <laughs> from the side, right? Like over the lip of the treasure chest. And it's got those little yellow lines to show that it's sparkling, right? So this is, this is one of those treasure chests. God is as present in this realm as he is in the highest heavens. He's just more concealed. That's it. When you know that, you know a lot. Okay. So, so the idea is that God wants us to recognize him in the concealment. And in order to recognize him in the concealment, God has to create something called concealment. But the concealment is only there for one reason, so that we can recognize him in the concealment, a.k.a. free choice. We need free choice. This entire world, this entire creation is predicated on the premise of creating a structure wherein there will be creatures, and that's you and me, who have free choice. Now remember, the Zohar says that the Torah is a blueprint of reality. And the very first letter, the very first letter of the Torah, which is the blueprint, meaning to say, when you, when you walk into this world, you walk through the first letter of the Torah. What is the first letter of the Torah? The letter Bays, which is the number two which stands for what? Free choice. Because I can do this or I can do that. That's free choice. The, imagine the entire Torah as this V standing on one little point. And that one little point is the base of Breshis. That's free choice. So now let's go back to the king. The king, meaning Hashem, during his lifetime, wants to give over rulership to his son, the Jewish people, right? <coughs> now, by the way, we're all God's children. All of us, Jewish, non-Jewish, we're all God's children. Not only that, we're all brothers and sisters. But everyone on earth Jewish and non-Jewish all have a share in the Torah. Very, very important. You have something known as the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, the seven universal commandments, which are applicable to everyone. And one of those is to believe in God. So, meaning Hashem. And, and it's important to know that we don't say that our God is stronger than your God. We say there is only one God. There is only one power. So, so the king says, I want to give over rulership to my child during my lifetime. What does that mean? We're talking about free choice. Right? God doesn't stop being God. What do you mean, hand over my rulership? That's a ridiculous idea. God remains God. The king remains the king. God never stops being the king, and God never stops being God. So what does it mean I want to hand over rulership to my, to my child? That means the creation of free choice. And then Rabbi, Rabbi Nachman says the following. I'm only going to do it under one condition, which is if and when you stop being king, you will remain joyous. If you don't remain joyous when you lose your kingship, then I will be happy because it means you were never king to begin with. And if you do remain joyous, 
after you lose your kingship, then you're still a king. <laughs> I mean, this is Rebbe Nachman. This is Rebbe Nachman. Rebbe Nachman got toward the end of his life and he said, my Torahs have become too deep. Like, like, and so he started saying over his, his Torahs in story form. Because he felt like through these type of stories, he's going to be able to communicate the deepest, deepest, deepest depths more effectively. So I'm going to say that one more time. The king says to the child, I'm handing over my kingship to you under one condition. That if and when you lose your kingship, that you remain happy. And if you don't, that means that you were never king to begin with. And so I will be happy that you lost it because you were never a king to begin with. And what's the proof? When you lost your kingship, you didn't remain happy. And if and when you do lose your kingship and you remain happy, then I will rejoice because even though you've lost your kingship by virtue of the fact that you've remained happy, you're still king. <laughs> so... I'm sure, I'm sure we can spend a lot of time discussing what that means, but let me just try to make it clear and simple, at least to the limits of what I understand. So I'll tell you my own story to begin the explanation. There was a guy in the neighborhood, I haven't seen him for many years, but he was a very sort of eccentric kind of guy. And I'd have to walk by, when I'd go to shul, there was a shul around the corner that I used to like to go to, and he was always working on his car in the driveway, like around the corner where I'd usually park. And, you know, I'd, I'd usually show up to shul like, like right at the time that Minion was starting, so I have to like park and then get to shul, you know? Or sometimes I'd be like a little bit late or whatever it is. So I was always like in a hurry, you know, because I was very, very mission focused. I, I was on my way someplace. I wasn't just on that block. I was going someplace. And whenever he'd see me, he'd go, come over here, come over here. Because he wanted to tell me something. <laughs> so I was always like, okay, <laughs> okay. As my father told me. You have five minutes for everyone. A very important teaching. You have five, as much of a rush as you're in, you have five minutes for everybody. And so, you know, I would go over. And one time he called me over and he said, do you know how long life is? And... You know, by the way, let me just tell you something. When someone asks you a question like that, they have the answer. <laughs> I, it took me many years to figure that out. So when someone asks me a question like that, I say, what's your answer? <laughs> it's like, let's just cut to it. You know what I mean? Let's just get to it. You know what I mean? so, so he said, one second. It's, it's, life is one second long. He said, because the past is gone and the future is not here yet, which means all of life is just one second. It's the second that's going on right now. That's how long life is. It's one second long. So if life is one second long, then, then you get to determine how you want to live that second. Up to you, how you want to experience that second. That is consistent with what the Torah says because we say that God is creating and recreating the world every single moment, which means every single moment is a brand new creation, which means you're never stuck because you're in a new world every single moment. You might be projecting barriers and barricades that were in front of you from the world that existed a moment ago, but that's your projection. It's a very freeing, liberating thought. 
It's a life-changing thought. Rabbi Nachman says that if you get really frustrated and you're like overwhelmed, you just like clap your hands and say, I'm going to begin again right now. I'm going to begin again right now. And that is actually not just sort of like positive thinking. That is consistent with reality because the world itself is beginning again right now. And you can tap right into, at that moment, the beginning of creation again. Where everything is possible. Now, you can only do that, and now we're getting back to an explanation of Rabbi Nachman. You can only do that if you're in a state of joy. Because one of the blessings of joy, one of the reasons why joy is like supernatural. That's the thing. Joy is supernatural. Because it allows you to understand all of these things. And now you're not just understanding them. If you actually are besimcha, you're not just understanding it at that point, you're living it. I mean, how many times do you, how many times in life, it's sort of like there's something that you've been thinking about doing and it's hard and uh, it's uncomfortable and everything like that. And then there comes that blessed, blessed day or blessed moment where you just say, you know, I'm going to make that call. Where like the gates open, right? Because you feel that you can do it. That's a manifestation of joy. Joy comes in different shades, different flavors. But, but the awareness that possibilities are real is a manifestation of joy. So this idea that for us to be real, all of us are emanations of God. Now listen carefully, listen very carefully. We are not God. We have a soul that God puts within us that is a piece of God. But man, meaning mankind, man, woman, we are not God. But we have godliness within us. But we are not God. Just imagine like rays of light coming out of the sun. We're all rays of light. And that idea of the ray, in, in Kabbalistic terminology, it's called the kav. And that kav is this line of energy that the entire universe comes out. And that ultimately is, becomes each one of us individually and the soul that's within us. So that's this divine, heavenly ray of light that's, that's shining all over the place, right? So when the king says that I'm giving over my kingship during my lifetime. That's the creation of human beings. And that's the shining of the ray of light into us. That now we can choose to use the godliness that he puts into each and every one of us in order to express God's kingship. But in order to do that, you have to remain besimcha. Because if you're not in a place of joy, then you're attributing power to other things around you other than God. What does it mean that I'm not in a state of joy? Well, because I'm very frustrated because I want to do this thing, but that guy over there is stopping me from doing this thing. Or I want to do this thing, but, you know. And, and everyone's got is pointing to a million different powers other than God that's preventing them from accomplishing what they want to accomplish. So if a person doesn't stay in a place of joy, they start to attribute power to things that aren't powers. So the king says, if he loses his kingship, if my son loses, if you, my son, loses his kingship, which is going to happen, it's inevitable, meaning to say, we are going to experience hard times and frustrations. This is, part of, this is part of life. It's part of the human condition. Not just to see God in the good, but to see God in, in every part of the manifestation of reality. If you remain, if you don't 
remain joyous, then you were never a king to begin with. Right? Because who is a king in that model? A king is an extension and a manifestation of God's kingship. So to manifest God in this world, you have to remain joyous. Then you are an open revelation of godliness. You know, I'm not going to go through the whole teaching. It's a, it's a little bit of a longish, complicated teaching. But I want to just get to the, the end result. I heard this from Rabbi Tatz. Basically, he says, what does it mean to be beautiful according to Judaism? What is beauty? Because Sarah is called beautiful. Yiska is the other name for Sarah. Yiska means the word to gaze. And Rashi points out that she had this name like gaze because people would gaze at her because she was so beautiful. So what is beauty according to Torah? And the answer is, is that when people look at you, they see God. Or that you are essentially this window through which people perceive that there's something greater in the world. And that's what beauty is. In other words, beauty, according to Torah, doesn't really have anything to do with physicality. It's that you present yourself in a way that people, again, like this clear window, that people see this light is coming through you. That's beauty. So that's, that would be another way of saying to be joyous. Because when you're joyous, you then become that window where you are communicating infinite possibility to other people. And they just feel that. It's not, it's not necessarily said through words. Like Reb Shlomo said the following. What's, what's the definition of a good friend? A good friend is when you're around them, you want to be a better person. What's the definition of a best friend? When you're around them, you're already a better person. That's a best friend. So that, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. In other words, the, the, the importance of being in this place of joyousness, of malchus, of kingship, is, is not just something that's beneficial for yourself, but it's something that radiates out and that other people are able to experience as well even if there are no words attached to it. Just the way that you comport yourself. Right? Like there was no one with me. I'm just, brain, just, just brainstorming right now. But there was no one with me when I was in the airport gate and I reached into my pocket and I realized I was locked out of my house. But I wish one of my children had been there because I wish they were able to see me go, you know what, I'm not going to think about it. And then actually to forget about it. Because that's an example where there is no lecture about theology attached to that. But there is a way to go through life and to live where not only are you benefiting from all of this, but where the people around you are benefiting as well just seeing how you go through life. It says in the Talmud that it's, it's actually a higher level to, to assist a Talmud Chacham. You know, what does that mean, to assist a Talmud Chacham? Well, it can mean anything. It can, it can mean to invest his money or invest money for him so that he has a, 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 a way to pay the rent and, and, and bills and things like that. That could be one manifestation of it. Another could be carrying his luggage, right? Just to physically assist him in the moment. That you learn more from assisting a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, than you do actually learning from him, like, say, with an open book, learning text from him. And my understanding of what that means is that when you learn it from a book, 
You're learning lessons and it's going into your mind and hopefully into your heart. But when you're assisting him, you're seeing Torah in action. You're seeing how to take all of these lessons and actually apply them to every situation in life. You know, there's a story in the Talmud. It's, it's a little bit way out. But one of the great rabbis was being intimate with his wife in bed. And they heard a noise. And his student was under the bed. <laughs> this is recorded in the Talmud. And, and they, they heard a noise. And they were like, what's going on? And the student explained, Rebbe, I have to learn. <laughs> you know, anyone who thinks, you know, God forbid you think that he was standing up watching. He was under the bed. But the point... You know, he didn't see anything, obviously. But, but the point was, you learn from watching someone in action. Because the point is not to learn these lessons. The point is to live these lessons. So with that in mind, I want to I go into another lesson. And a, a life lesson. So we're going to transition right now. We're going to talk about another topic. But, you know, everything's related. I saw this magnificent quote about Judaism. Someone was writing a book about Judaism. And they said, it's so hard to write a book about Judaism because every concept is hyperlinked. <laughs> and as someone who's tried to write a little bit myself, I can tell you that it's really true because if you want to start to write something, you realize, well, wait a second, I have to introduce that thought. But then you have to introduce the introduction to the thought. And then you have to introduce the introduction of the introduction of the thought. Because literally every single thing is hyperlinked. So I say I'm going to change the subject, but it's all one subject, right? God is one. It's all, it's all one subject. I'll tell you something awesome. You want to hear something absolutely awesome? Yeah. One of the best gematrias I've learned in probably years so the name, there are different divine names for Hashem. And each name is a description of how God is manifesting at that moment. So, so when you see the name Elohim, that means how God manifests himself through the natural order. In other words, nature is not a, a separate divine power. There is only one power. But God manifests himself in the form of nature as well. And of course, nature is an ongoing miracle. It's just, as they say, a miracle that we've gone bored of. <laughs> so our mind should blow every single moment that we just look around but because we've seen it over and over, we just have decided that, well, that's just normal and that's just the way it is. Nothing is normal. Everything is a miracle. The Ramban from a thousand years ago, one of our greatest, most authoritative Torah commentators, the Ramban says, anyone who doesn't appreciate that every single thing that happens is a miracle, and he's talking about every mundane thing, the movement of every finger, the blinking of an eye, Anyone who doesn't appreciate that every single thing that happens is a miracle has no share in the Torah of Moshe. Do you understand how strong a statement that is? That means that if you don't understand that everything that's going around you is an independent miracle, you don't even begin to understand what the Torah is saying. So this name, Elohim, which means how God expresses himself in when he's expressing himself in the form of the natural order that surrounds us, that's the number 86. That name is 86. Okay, the exact word is Elohim. And I'm just saying Elohim now, because out of respect, you don't overuse divine names when you don't have to. Now, the number one, because we're saying that 
that there is only one power, that the natural order is not an independent power. There is only one power. The number one is the Gamatria 13. Echad is the Gamatria 13. So now listen to this. This is blowout. You ready? 86 times 13. In other words, the God as he manifests himself in the natural order times the oneness of God is the gematria Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. It's divine. It's divine. It's divine. It's divine. Right? Why are we saying Shema? Why, why is that the word that we say, the last words we say before we go to sleep at night, and the last words we say before we leave this world? And by the way, each day is a miniature of a lifetime. That's why it's our last words before we go to sleep. Why, why is that the phrase? Why is that the phrase? The verse. Because it's cutting through absolutely everything. It's telling us that we're seeing God's oneness in absolutely everything that exists. So now when the Kain Gadol went into the Holy of Holies, there were these bells that rang because on the bottom of the hem of his garment, there were these golden bells. And in between the golden bells were these pomegranates. Then you'd, he would walk into the Holy of Holies and one of the explanations is that he would hear that ringing as he walked in to sort of like keep him from just basically completely leaving his clee like that so his soul shouldn't fly out of his body. Walking into the holiest place on the holiest day, the holiest soul, right? Time, space, and soul all coming together at that moment. And the Katzka Rebbe says, the only moment of truth that exists in this world is when the kind Gadol on the holiest day would walk into the holiest place. It's the only moment of truth that exists in this world. And the bells would ring to keep him from, just to keep him in his body, basically. So... The Torah is very divine, but it's also very beautiful and kind, the way it uses language. And there are many examples of this. I'll give you sort of maybe the most famous one. When it talks about the animals going on to Noah's Ark, all the animals went on. And by the way, Rabbi Wolfson brings something very beautiful. You know, you probably wonder, like, which... Animals were chosen to get on the ark because there were a lot of animals in each of the species. And you know what he says? The tzaddikim of each of the species. Isn't that amazing? The righteous ones are the ones that made it onto the ark. They were the ones that were chosen. Amazing. So you had more clean animals, tahor animals, than tame animals. So what are tame or impure, spiritually speaking, impure animals? Are animals that, for instance, are not kosher, we can't ingest them, or can't be brought as sacrifices, or that if you touch them, you become spiritually impure. These, are, these would be in the category of tame animals. So everything was included. Remember, all the fish, by the way, the fish didn't die during the flood. They, they, they remained alive. So, so when, it, when, when the instructions come down, of how many and of which animals, Hashem says that you're to bring this amount of the Tahor animals, those that are spiritually pure, and you are to bring this amount of the animals that are not Tahor. In other words, the word Tame, impure, is not used. Not bring this many pure and this many impure. Bring this many that are pure and these, this many that are not pure. 
And Rashi points out the incredible sensitivity of that language not to use the word tame, not to use the word impure. That sensitivity, that divine sensitivity. And we have to, that's just part of the art form of being a human being, that when you communicate with other people, your word choices, your word choices are really important. And to be sensitive to what words that you're using. You know, one of the most heartbreaking things I ever heard in my life, I knew this girl in, in college. Gifted, smart girl was from like a family that was like, you know, like American royalty, right? Pretty girl. And she told me that when she was eight years old, her babysitter told her that she was ugly. And she carried that scar with her like till the time that I knew her. Can you imagine? The power of words. Given the fact, and this is an important number now, that there were 72 bells and 72 pomegranates. We're going to get to 72 in a moment. You could say, since they alternated and they went around in a circle, that the verse in the Torah should say, because we had to make this garment, that it should be a bell and then a pomegranate and then a bell. You could say it that way. Or you could say it the way it actually does say it in the Torah, which is a pomegranate, a bell, and then a pomegranate. Now, the pomegranates didn't make any noise. The bells did make noise. As we said, they had to ring to sort of keep the Kain Gadol, right? The high priest of Israel, like conscious, conscious in his body as he entered into this other dimension of the Holy of Holies. So I saw in this collection of Torahs, an amazing book. It's called The Torah Treasury from Art Scroll, a big oversized book, highly recommended. One of my go-to, go-to books. I forgot which rabbi said it. But he said that the reason why it says a pomegranate, a bell, and a pomegranate. Remember, the bell symbolizes talking. The bell symbolizes talking because it makes noise. And you know that little ringer inside of a bell? That's like a tongue. So the bell symbolizes talking. So it says a pomegranate, a bell, and a pomegranate. Why? Because your talking should be surrounded by silence. And it doesn't say it the other way. A bell, a pomegranate, and a bell, because it's not that your silence should be surrounded by talking. Now, there were 72 bells, and the Balaturim brings an amazing connection. Listen to this. This is now going to get very deep. That in Nagaim, a section of the Talmud, that there were 72 shades of white that were manifest in the nega. The nega was the wound, so to speak, that saras would show up on, on a person's skin, or a person's clothes, or a person's house. And that came, this sort of like, it was saras, they translated as leprosy, but it wasn't leprosy, but I guess it was like leprosy. It was a physical manifestation of a spiritual malady. And they said the primary reason, the rabbis teach the primary reason that a person would get saras was from the misuse of their speech for, by speaking Lashon Hara. So that's why it's correlating with the bells. The bells are like talking. And so there's 72 bells because there's 72 shades of white that this nega, that this blemish could manifest itself on a person's skin or clothing or their house. 72 shades of white? That's a lot of shades of white. This is me talking right now. 
It's a lot of shades of white. 72 different shades of white. Now let's, let's go deeper. The Ramban says the Torah is black fire on white fire. Now the black fire are words that you pronounce, right? That's the ink on the Torah. Those are the words. So you're, those, that's the talking. Okay? But in between each of the letters is white fire or silence. So do you see how that correlates with the bells and the pomegranates? The bells are the talking. The pomegranates are the silence. The black fire, the letters, are the talking. The white fire is in between. That's the silence. Not only that, for a Torah scroll to be kosher, each letter has to be surrounded by white fire. And that's the Torah teaching that your talking should be surrounded by silence. Now let's go even deeper. When we talk about the structure of the universe, we talk about levels of worlds. Now they're not planets. We're not talking about Jupiter and Saturn. We're talking about stratifications of light. And basically God, through this process called Simsum, is going to be contracting an aspect, not all of his divine light, but the outer garment, so to speak, of his divine light, God is going to be contracting it until it becomes the physical realm. And again, that's Einstein. Einstein is giving us numbers to understand that. What did Einstein say? That E equals MC squared, energy becomes mass. Divine light is energy. God is going to take this aspect of part of his light, the outer garment of his light, and he's going to contract that divine energy, that divine light, until it gets compressed into a physical world. And so at Einstein, I, I wrote a piece called Einstein is my favorite Kabbalist, right? Because what did Einstein do? Einstein gave math and numbers to something the Torah has been saying for thousands of years. But now we have the math to go with, which shows you that science is still catching up with Torah. So the last stages of the light, before we get to this world, in terms of the, this dimension that we're in right now, are these four segmentations, these four stratifications. The top stratification, the highest, there's nothing in it. It's just light, blazing divine light. And it has a name. It's called Atsilus. It's the highest, the highest of the worlds. Now, there's even higher than that. But I'm talking about when we get to this thing called world. Right? So that's Atsilus. That's really high. That's, really, that's the highest, okay? Now I'm going to tell you a story about Atsilus. So the Sanzer Rebbe, by third meal, remember, third meal is the high point of Shabbos. And this is something that I've been working on in my own life, and I, I recommend that everyone work on this in their own lives as well, which is to really feel and to appreciate that the third meal is the highest point of Shabbos. And it takes some work because really all the fireworks are Friday night. And then you get into this kind of blissed out groove like Shabbos day. And then by the time third meal comes, you're a little tired. Maybe you're cranky. You know, you don't want to go out necessarily. You don't want to go back to shul. So you're a little out of sorts. But that's the highest point of Shabbos. So to like really work on yourself, to get to this point, the Zohar calls it Riva de Riva, which means the highest of the highest. So to, to try to cultivate in yourself this sensitivity that third meal is the highest is, takes work, but I'm working on it and I suggest you work on it too. Because why be at the highest of the highest and not know that you're at the highest of the highest, right? Like, why be at the best concert with earplugs in? 
You know, you're already at the concert. You might as well take out the earplugs. So the Sanzer Rebbe would go to Atsilus, third meal. He would be here, but he would go into like this, you know, this transcendent place. And so one time he was coughing very hard during Shalashudas, during third meal. And his son came up to him with a glass of hot tea. And his father, the Sanzer Rebbe, said, they don't drink tea in Atsilus. And his son said back to him, they don't cough in Atsilus either. <laughs> and then my favorite part of the story, he drank the tea. He drank the tea. They didn't have to, that, that, the, the part one, the line before was so funny. I'm just telling you as a writer, you could have ended the story there. But that's, they didn't just throw in that extra line. That extra line is, is a giant teaching. He drank the tea. Do you know what that means? That means that he wasn't so arrogant, chas that he was like, well, okay, maybe I'm coughing, but I was still in Atsilus though, right? Right? He, he wasn't, that's not where he was at. It's a big teaching there, right? So now listen to this. I told you that there's shades of silence because the pomegranates stand for silence. And there's 72 bells. We're just staying on the number 72 because that talking, that ringing of the bell stands for talking and that's correlating with the 72 shades of white that Saras could manifest on. But this idea in Atsilus that there's nothing there, it's just, so to speak, white fire. And now listen to this. Each of these four worlds, Atsilus, Berea, Yetzira, and Asiya, where we're in, has a different way to spell out the Yudke Vavke, God's holiest name. Because you can spell you can spell the letter hey. Hey Yud. You can spell it hey hey. You can spell Vav. Vav Vav. You can spell Vav Vav Aleph Vav. You can spell Vav Vav Yud Vav. So if you take the spelling out of each of the letters of the Yud K Vav K and you spell them out to their maximum numerical value. And of course, the maximum numerical value is going to correlate with the highest of worlds, which is Atsilus. It comes out to the number 72. And what did I tell you? There is nothing in Atsilus. What did we say? That there's 72 shades of white. Halakhically speaking, how are we manifesting silence in our life? And how are we perceiving and how are we receiving silence in our life? What did I tell you? What was the treasure chest? That God is equally here as he is in the highest of realms. He's just more concealed. Or let me put it that another way. God is equally here. He's just more silent. And there's shades of silence. Just like there's shades of revelations of godliness, even when we can't see him, even when we can't hear him. When I saw that key on the airplane floor, that was God screaming, screaming to me in the silence. To hear God in the silence, which is not silence at all. That's what it means to be connected to heaven. What follows now are some questions and answers. So the question is, how is God doing, so to speak? And I heard from Rabbi Green that if you were to ask God at any moment, how are you doing? He'd go, great, 
I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, uh, you know, so, so that's, that's important to know because a lot of us, I think, live with this idea, God is angry, he's angry at me, you know, and everything like that. And it's like, it's not that. It really isn't that. He wants all of us to do better. And we're finite and God is infinite and he wants us to continually pull toward an even greater revelation of his oneness. So, so that sometimes requires something called tikkun, which means fixing. And tikkun oftentimes is not fun. It's not fun. Um, and even involves suffering. You know, Rabbi Rosenfeld said something like really on the mark, just to preface it. One of the great things about the Judaism in general is that we are constantly defining terms. Right? Like, for instance, I, I'll tell you something. If someone, God forbid, is a chola, meaning sick on Yom Kippur, and doesn't have medical permission to fast, many people don't fast on Yom Kippur according to Jewish law because they're not allowed to fast. But you have to eat in a very certain way. In other words, there's only a certain amount that you can eat, and it has to be measured before Yom Kippur, and there's only a certain amount that you can drink and that has to be also measured. And, and, but, the, but the amazing thing here is that if you go according to these measurements and you have a responsible doctor who's telling you that, you know, you need to eat. By the way, I'll tell you an incredible story. I heard this from Reb Shlomo. A doctor came in. There were like two elderly religious Jews. And this is a true story. And the doctor told both of them, you know, it's going to be Yom Kippur and neither of you are permitted to eat to fast. You both have to eat. And one of them was like, you know, you could have taken a sledgehammer to his heart. What do you mean I can't fast? My whole life I fasted on Yom Kippur. What do you mean I can't fast? And the other one said, my whole life I served God by fasting on Yom Kippur. This year I will serve God by eating on Yom Kippur. This is how, like, if you are a turned on Jew and you actually are learning Torah in a proper way, this is how you go through life. So, so the idea, getting back to measurements, is that if you eat the, the prescribed amount and you drink the prescribed amount, which are custom designed for Yom Kippur for a sick person, you ready for this? That's not called eating and that's not called drinking. In other words, you are either you are neither eating nor drinking on Yom Kippur because eating has a definition, which is to eat a certain amount and you're eating less than that. And drinking has a definition, which means you're drinking a certain amount and you're drinking less than that. So you're eating and drinking and you're not eating or drinking. This is the greatness or one, one small aspect of the greatness that comes with the ability to define absolutely everything. The, the Talmud actually defines what suffering is. And you would think that, oh wow, the Jewish people have been through so much, like, it's, it's going to take a lot to get to the level of suffering. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm with these suffering experts here. You know what I mean? Like, you don't just, like, ah, oh, you call yourself a sufferer? I know how to suffer, you know? So what, what is the Talmudic, the Talmudic definition of suffering? And it gives several examples. I don't know if I can give you all of them, but I'll, I'll try. One version is if you order a hot drink and they bring you a cold drink. Or if you order a cold drink and they bring you a hot drink. Another is if you reach for a quarter in your pocket and you pull out a nickel, or you reach for a nickel in your pocket and you pull out a quarter. These are very low levels of discomfort. That, this is the, the headline here. If you bring your clothes to the tailor and they didn't quite do it right. These are all definitions of suffering. And now here's what Rabbi Rosenfeld said. What's the point? If our expectation deviates even slightly from the result, that's called suffering. 
Why? Because God fills the entire world, and God also fills us. So why would there be a disconnect at all between what we want and what manifests? In other words, there shouldn't be any dissonance at all. So even if there's the slightest dissonance, that's showing basically that this world is, like that there's fixing that's needed in this world. In order to make that completely holistic and consistent, the above and the below. That's when we talk about the, the vav of the yudke vavke. The vav is drawing down the light from the higher worlds. Right? When that vav, Kabbalistically speaking, when that vav, it's called the machadash, okay? So it's a technical term. But when that, when that pipeline is completely working, and, and what, what I mean working, God is perfect, God can do anything. It's the balls in our court. It's through our Torah and through our mitzvahs that we get that pipeline exactly aligned. When we get that pipeline aligned, then there is, no, there is no deviation at all between what's inside us and what's outside of us. And God is, is manifesting. So, so tikkun doesn't feel great. Fixing doesn't feel great. And oftentimes there's suffering beyond the type of suffering that we just talked about. But I once thought of this visual that I'll share with you. Now, I don't know if you know much about thorn bushes. But thorn bushes, first of all, thorn bushes are great because they produce flowers, right? And I saw one time on a poster when I was a kid, we can mourn that flowers, that rose bushes have thorns, or we can rejoice that thorn bushes have roses, right? But either way, if you're dealing with thorns, thorns are a bummer. <laughs> I don't even know how to say it. I've had experience with thorns, and they're really sharp, and they absolutely puncture your skin, and they make you bleed. They're not fun. Thorns are not fun. So imagine like a massive thorn bush. Now imagine someone just sort of like wanders off the road, and they walk into the middle of a thorn bush. That's a very painful experience. That's a bad situation the person's got themselves in. Now that person, of course, if you're that person, you want to be rescued from the middle of a thorn bush. But guess how you get out of the middle of the thorn bush? Through the thorn bush. That's tikkun. It doesn't feel good. And as you're being pulled through it, you go, what are you doing to me? You're killing me. I'm saving you. I'm saving you. Okay. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. <laughs>